2006, I took a group of students to visit the downtown east side of Vancouver on a month-long learning trip. And we were trying to understand what poverty was like in our own country. Uh, and we learned a lot about the effects of trauma and gentrification and addiction and oppression. And uh, while we were there, a lot of our time was spent in these uh, like soft activities. Um, when you go on a mission trip, there are some things that feel real to the participant, right? Like when you build something or you paint something or you serve a meal and it feels like you're doing some good. And that easy, it's easy to do those, but it also contributes to this sense of, uh, of us being in power. It contributes to an understanding of a false dichotomy, an us and them kind of mentality that keeps us away from the people that we're getting to know. Anyway, so our host, in the, my host in the downtown east side, really understood that. And so they kept sending our whole team out into these cities, into the city, um, with nothing to do except observe what was going on and talk to people. And we weren't allowed to take any money with us, so we couldn't just end up sitting around a coffee shop, and there weren't really cell phones, so you couldn't scroll through Facebook. So it contributed to a lot of discomfort <laughs> and a lot of learning. And one afternoon, I was with my little group, about three of us, and we wandered into an art gallery that was featuring some carving by uh, First Nations artists. And the woman behind the counter told us that actually the artist in residence was up on the second floor working on some new pieces and we could go watch if we wanted, which we did. We watched for a long time until most of the other people had kind of left. And um, he asked us what we were doing in Vancouver and we told him and it turns out that he was a Christian. So somebody said, well, what's, what's your story? And so he told us how he had started drinking when he was in his very early teens and continued for years until... Uh, he eventually started using heroin as well. And the truth is that I can't remember anymore, this is a long time ago, um, whether he came to faith first and then got clean or vice versa. But I've never forgotten what he told us about the process. He said one of the hardest things for him was figuring out what to do with his hands all the time. Because after decades of cooking heroin two or three times a day, his hands were always fidgety. He wanted something to do with them. And so someone suggested that he take up carving. And it was incredible to hear him talk about how carving helped keep him clean. Well, we stood there watching him carve in an art gallery. And he kept going. I mean, I don't even think he ever looked up from what he was doing to see us. He just talked while these long curls of wood peeled away from the block. He said, I was fighting all the time too, but you can't do that when you're a Christian. And then he laughed really hard at that idea and he said, so I thought maybe I would start learning some of the traditional dances, that maybe dancing could take the place of fighting. And he went on to tell us that he had started teaching classes to youth on the weekends. I don't remember what they were about, but he said he needed a way like something to put in place of all the lying that he had been doing to get money for drugs all those years. So he put teaching in place of that. And I came home that night so moved by this man's story, searching through the scripture because I couldn't remember where it was, for this verse that I knew from song that ended up being in Isaiah 61 that says that 
the Lord is going to give them a garland of praise instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. And to me, that sounded an awful like an awful lot like teaching instead of lying, and dancing instead of street fighting, and carving instead of purple hearts. We've been studying the book of Ephesians this summer, and in the words of Ephesians, this man, this artist, was a flesh and blood example of putting away the former way of life and putting on the new self. Clothing yourselves with the new self according to the likeness of Christ. We're going to watch a quick video to help us remember where we are in the book of Ephesians. Or if you're just joining us this week to help catch you up. Um, And during this series, we have been using these little booklets. Let's find the cover. Oh, there. We've been using these little booklets to help us follow along with the text. So if you're new, if you're visiting this morning and you need a booklet, while we're watching the video, just raise your hand, and uh, the ushers at the back are going to come and give you a booklet. They promise not to throw it at your head. They're going to hand it to you gently. Uh, And um, also, if you know that your booklet is tucked away in your mailbox where we're keeping them, uh, the video is a great time for you to take out some notes. So let's watch this together. There was persecution outside and fighting inside the church. And into that context, Paul writes Ephesians. It's a letter that lays out a worldview for believers, a way of understanding what's really going on. And the point of the letter is God knows exactly what he's writing. He's enacting a plan to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. He's going to gather up all the broken, divided, forgotten people and reconcile them to himself through Jesus. It started when God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places and put everything, everything we're afraid of, everything that has power over, under his feet. And the church, well, before we became believers, we were dead in the water. We were stuck, following the course of the world, following the ruler of the power of the air, following the desires of our flesh. We are being carried along by forces we can't even see. Ideas like individualism and consumerism, the drive to make money, being suspicious of a people group, or thinking you're only valuable if you look a certain way. We're all stuck in that current, and it's too powerful to swim against. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. It's like God reaches down and just sucks us out of the water. And more than just being with Jesus, we are his body. The church is so connected to Jesus, we can't be separated. The problem is there are a lot of divisions in the church. 
theological differences, grudges, worship styles, racial divides, they all keep us cut off from one another. But how can a divided body model God's plan for reconciliation? It won't work. Paul says that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He is making one new humanity, reconciling both groups to God in one body. And when that happens, the church can accomplish God's plan. That's why it matters that we learn to love each other. It matters that you shake hands with a neighbor this morning or that you apologize or forgive your friend. It matters because the church is the body of Christ, a living example of God's cosmic plan. We are going to show the world that God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. And it's starting here with us. So in the first half of the letter of Ephesians, Paul is describing this whole new reality that is true of us once we become followers of Christ. And then in the second half of the letter, he starts to get really specific about how, what that needs to look like, how we need to live. Because even though we are different, even though we become a new person and we're part of the body of Christ, a lot of things around us still look the same. We have a different identity, a whole new self, and that can happen instantly. But then we also still somehow have to learn to put the new identity on and wear it every day. Last week, Tom started talking about this. He was teaching from Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 32. So if you look at that section in your booklet, Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, I know this was last week. If you look at verse 22 and 23, it says, you were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lust, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to clothe yourself with the new self, created according to the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. It goes on to say that we have to put away falsehood and instead speak truth. Put away stealing and instead work honestly with our hands and have something to share. Put away evil talk and instead speak in a way that builds others up. It reminds me so much of this artist I met, putting away fighting and instead dancing, putting away lying and instead teaching, putting away heroin and instead partying. It's a really helpful way of thinking about our new life together. Because Tom mentioned last week that sometimes Christianity can seem like a list of do's and don'ts. This is not like that. This is something else. If you are now part of the body of Christ, if you are adopted daughters and sons of the living God, then there are some things that will need to be put away, things that have no place in your life anymore. But it's not just about getting rid of everything. You can't leave these gaping holes in your life. You have to put something else in their place. We put on new things to replace the old. And these instructions about what we put off and what we put on are really important to Paul. The text that we're looking at today 
uh, continues to explore those things. So today we're looking at Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 20. It'll say that in bold letters on the top of your booklet, Ephesians 5, 1 to 20. I'll read this for us, and you can follow along in your booklet. And while I'm reading, feel free to circle or underline things that ha- come up more than once, any ideas or themes that are there more than once, and jot down in the margins or at the bottom any questions that you have. Okay? Here's, here's today's question. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But fornication and impurity of any kind or greed must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among saints. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Be sure of this, that no fornicator or impure person or one who is greedy, that is, an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be associated with them. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do in in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise making the most of the time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything. In the name of our Lord. In the video that we watched, we talked about the church being the body of Christ. Remember that part where we sort of draw the church in the middle of Christ? And Jesus being the head of the church. Now that's kind of a strange thing to think about, but basically what it means is that we are intimately connected to Jesus, and he's the one who's in charge. He gets to set the agenda because he's the head. It's the way that a fire chief gets to set the agenda or the coach on a sports team or even the parent of small children. And the section of the letter starts off by telling us how to relate to God and Jesus as our head. Verse 1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children. The message translation, it's just a modern day translation, says it like this. Find out what God does and then you do it. That's pretty straightforward, right? Find out what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Kids learn so much from their parents. I want us to watch a little video clip about um, kids learning from their parents. Okay. 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 Okay.
that it's in your eyes. Oh. You gotta see it, okay? Is you it, gotta feel it. Okay. So is you it ready? So is it okay. You ready to see so it? Is it hot? Is it gonna be a good day? Mm. A really good day? It's gonna be positive? Because I am strong. I am strong. And I am smart. I am smart. And I work hard. I work hard. I am beautiful. I am beautiful. I am respectful. I am respectful. Yes. <laughs> so I'm not better than anyone. I'm not better than anyone. Nobody's better than me. Nobody's better than me. I am amazing. I am amazing. I am great. I am great. What's your name? Aaliyah Austin. If you fall, I get back up. What are you? I'm luck. Yes. Say thank you, God. Thank you, God. For making me. For making me. The greatest. The greatest. There's nobody. There's nobody. Better. Better. Than me. Than me. All right, give me five. Give me six. Give me seven. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love watching this dad teach his daughter how to think, right? How to think about herself, who she is, what to do as the day goes by. That's what we are supposed to do with God. We're supposed to find out what God does and then do it. Like, I don't know how to get him to stand behind me in the mirror in the morning, but, but that's what we're supposed to do. And the theme carries on in Ephesians. In verse 10, Paul says, try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. In verse 17, he says, understand what the will of the Lord is. We need to find out what God does, what makes God happy, what God's will is, and then we do it. And that might be the most straightforward thing we've ever heard. Right? Just find out what he does and then do it. How am I supposed to know what to do now that I'm a Christian? Just find out what God does and then do that. But actually, how do you find out what God does? He's hard to observe, being like essentially spirit and invisible and all that. Right? It's hard to observe him. But Jesus, who is God's son, is not at all hard to see. When you see what Jesus is doing, you are seeing what God is doing. Jesus is demonstrating the will of God. And scripture says that over and over, that Jesus knows and does the will of God. In John 1, verse 18, the author tells us, no one has ever seen God. And that's so cool. No one has ever seen God. It is Jesus, the only son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. And Jesus himself says in John 14 that he and God are one and the same. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And so we need to imitate God, which means imitating Jesus, which means we need to get to know Jesus as intimately and thoroughly as we possibly can. And we do that sometimes through listening to sermons and through prayer, of course, but primarily we get to know Jesus through studying the stories of his life. We read them over and over again and soak in them, get to know them backwards and forwards. There are four books in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
names for their authors, and there are four compilations of stories from the life of Jesus. And we need to study those books. It always surprises me when people don't want to study the Gospels. I mean, when, like, when Christians don't want to study the Gospels. I get it in one sense. We want something intense, right? We want to study something meaty, something with substance. So we'd like a Pauline letter or we want a prophet uh, story from the Old Testament. I understand that. But I'm telling you that we need the stories of Jesus more than we need anything else. Because watching his life and studying his actions, that is the way that we come to know him. That is the only way that we can come to know the man who is our head. That's how we learn to imitate him. Are you wondering, for example, how to treat someone who's very sick and potentially contagious? There's a story about that. Are you concerned about whether or not you should really pay your taxes? There's a story about that. Are you wondering what to do if you find out that someone has been stealing money from other people? There's a story about that. Are you wondering how, as a Christian man, you should treat a woman appropriately, treat women who are not your wife appropriately? Actually, there are a lot of stories about that. You know, I love the book of Ephesians, right? I'm so glad that we're studying this letter together, but more than Ephesians, we need the stories of Jesus. That's how we understand what God's will is, how we learn what, ple- learn what pleases God, how we come to be imitators of him by watching his life. In fact, in verse 2, so sorry to keep you only on verse 2, even Paul references Jesus as a good example of imitating God. He says, live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's the spoiler alert, I guess, if you've not read through the Gospels before, that watching what Jesus is doing, what you're going to find is that you're watching deep, true, self-sacrificing, life-giving love. As we come into the fall, the leadership team and the staff have been working on um, what is next for our church? What do we need in this coming season? And we know that together, all together, we need to grow in maturity and commitment to mission. That's so in line with what we've been reading in Ephesians that the church needs to come to maturity, that we all together need to come to the full measure of the stature of Christ, right? We have to grow up into him who is the head. So we're going to talk more about that in our September series, but we're going to ask everyone, every one of you, whether you call yourself a Christian or you don't, to do two things in this coming year. One is to join a ministry team, so that you grow in commitment to the mission. And the second is to join a Bible study so that you can learn how to imitate Jesus. We're going to run an Alpha program in the fall, which is a course designed for people who do not have a lot of experience with faith. It answers a lot of questions. It's one of the Bible studies, and it will help you get to know Jesus. And we're also going to run some manuscript studies in the Gospel of Mark, where we'll start at the beginning and we'll work our way all the way through, asking questions and observing the life of Jesus as we go. 
And I want you to join one of those things. I want you to make it a priority this year to get to know Jesus so that you can imitate God. Okay. Now we were talking about uh, the carver, the artist, who was taking off an old life and putting on a new one. And this text today talks quite a bit about that as well. Let's take a look at the things we're supposed to take off. This is in verse 3, and Paul jumps right in. But fornication, impurity of any kind, or greed must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among the saints. And then in verse 4, he says, Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk. I always get kind of antsy about this part because it's so easy when it's about our words, about talking to think that this text is about swearing, that it's basically telling us we shouldn't swear, which I don't really buy. I I mean, I don't really think that we should use bad language all the time, but I'm not sure that God is very concerned about what you whisper under your breath in your study Bible. And there are times when a situation calls for strong language, and we would be doing a disservice to lighten or tone down our words. So I don't think this passage is about four-letter words. I think it's about something much, much more significant. I was reading this week about um, the sexual practices in the Greco-Roman world during the time when Paul was writing. So listen, you think our culture is bad? It was normal practice, just normal, everyday practice. For a married man to have sex with his wife for the sake of procreation and then to keep a home and raise a family with her, while at the same time he was having recreational sex with all kinds of other people outside. And a number of different partners. Scott McKnight, in his new book, A Fellowship of Difference, um, describes that. He says married men would be sleeping with prostitutes, with other men, both adults and young boys, and with slaves. And that without a doubt, When female slaves were mentioned in scripture, they were being used for sex. It was so common as to be completely invisible, completely and totally accepted. But Paul, who's writing this letter, he held to the biblical mandate that marriage was supposed to be between one man and one woman. He held to celibacy outside of marriage and fidelity within it. Because that's what God taught in scripture from creation onward. And obviously that position was in stark contrast to the sexual ethics of the men and women who were becoming believers and joining his churches. That creates a lot of conflict. And so what he's saying here in Ephesians is that our sex lives have to come under the authority of Jesus just like everything else. We believe that when come under Jesus as our head, we have to take off fornication, take off impurity of any kind, take off greed. What does that mean to take it off? It means we have to stop sleeping with people we're not married to. In fact, we have to stop even getting close to that. We have to stop trying to see how close we can get to the line without crossing it. We have to stop being greedy and wanting more than one person for ourselves. We have to stop leading double lives where we have a nice family on the surface, but we're totally addicted to pornography 
kind of wondering whether pornography might be our modern-day equivalent of the slave world. And I'm not making light of it. But it's not really acceptable anymore for us to have a slave in our homes that we exploit for sex. Although, there are frighteningly high numbers of boys and girls who are being sold into sexual slavery in Canada every day. Some of my close friends are working on the front line of that intervention. It's shocking what's going on in our country. But still, it's much more commonplace, much more normal for us to spend a little while behind closed doors with our cell phones. Right? Think about this. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry. It makes, according to Forbes magazine, more money than Major League Baseball. And every single adult and most teens have the internet in their pocket. That's our normal. But as members of the church, it's another story. We have to put that away. We have to end it in our lives. We can't even joke about it. I think that's what verse 4 is really about. We can sometimes think that our words don't matter, but they absolutely do. If you're willing to joke about women's bodies in ads or movies, if you're willing to rate them, give them a score out of 10, if you're willing to make fat jokes, if you agree that a woman is more valuable because she's hot, all of that contributes to separating her body from her person. It makes you think about her like an object rather than a human being. And it is much easier to exploit and use and dispose of an object. I used to talk about this stuff with students all the time when I was working for InterVarsity for 15 years. And then one evening I was washing dishes with my friend Preston. And uh, he had been a student of mine and now he's working with me. And uh, he said, Okay, I have a question to ask you that's kind of serious. Okay. He said, when we were watching that movie last night, you were joking with some of the women in the room that you had a crush on Matt Damon. And he said, we're always so clear about how wrong that is for men to do that to women who are on a screen. And I just, truly, I just wondered, is it different for women? Because it really seemed like the same thing to me. Absolutely right. Women, we are not off the hook with this stuff. We have to be just as careful. We have to put off the same things. None of us, men or women, can joke about obscene or vulgar things. It is absolutely inconsistent with our new identity in Christ. And so we take it off. And instead, we put on thanksgiving. See that? That's in verse 4. Now, the truth is, I am not entirely sure why thanksgiving is the thing that is supposed to go on in place of everything else. I really got putting dancing in place of fighting. They felt similar to me, but I don't know about this one. So my best guess, as I've been studying, is that fornication and impurity and greed, they all kind of stem from this dissatisfaction with what we have, right? My wife isn't adventurous enough. 
my husband isn't attentive enough, if you're single and my husband is non-existent. And you end up getting into this place where you feel dissatisfied with what's in front of you. You want something else more than that. And over time, that leads you down a path where you're likely to reach out into addiction. I wonder what would happen if we tried to put on Thanksgiving as a counterpoint to greed or a counterpoint to lust, which is really just a very specific kind of greed. Paul goes on to say in verse 6 and 7, let no one deceive you. It's likely that there were people at that time, people who were Christians, who were teaching that this sexually charged lifestyle didn't have any consequences, that it was fine to do what everybody else around you did. And Paul says, that is not true. Do not be associated with them. He means partners. Do not be partners with them. And I think that means with the false teachers, right? I don't think that Paul is telling us not to be associated with the other people in the, in the world because that would be so much in contrast to our mandate to tell people about Jesus. But don't have anything to do with people who say they're Christians but tell you it doesn't matter how you live. For, in verse 8, which is like saying because, for once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light. You used to be your old self, but now you're made new. So live like your new self. Live like Jesus. Don't be unwise, Paul says in verse 15. And then in verse 17, don't be foolish. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we were studying this and the letter told us to grow up? It's like that. It's grow up. And don't put it off until tomorrow, because time goes fast, doesn't it? My grandfather passed away a couple of weeks ago, and um, he was 86 years old, and he had an incredibly hard life. Like, he saw and lived through things that I can't imagine. But for the last 20 years, he has spent the majority of his life on the couch or on his bed watching TV. He doesn't even come to the phone when my dad, his son, calls. He wouldn't even come to the living room to see my family when we drove some three hours away to visit. For 20 years. And I, like, I really get that it is not up to me to judge his life. Right? There might have been depression. There might have been other things going on for him that I don't know anything about. But when I read Paul's words here in verse 10, to make the most of the time because the days are evil, I am so challenged by that, not to waste my life, not to wait until next week or next month to start putting off the old thing and putting on the new, because 20 years can go by in a heartbeat. In the final verses, uh, Paul tells us, do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery. I had to look up what debauchery means, so I got it right. Here it is. It's excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. So it turns out that this is picking up 
a theme we've seen throughout Ephesians. In chapter 4, it says they've lost all sensitivity and abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Licentiousness means that you're giving yourself permission or license to do something that you would not recommend other people do. And it usually has to do with sensual pleasure. And then way back in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, All of us once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. And so Paul keeps coming back around to this idea that our bodily desires, sensual pleasures, drive us to things that aren't good for us. I don't think anybody would argue with that. Whether it's pornography or extramarital sex, like we've been talking about today, or it's excessive shopping or overeating or abusing substances, our flesh, our greed, our lust should not be in charge of our decision-making. I, I mean, I want to be clear, Paul is not a prude. Right? And this, neither is Jesus, by the way. And this text is not an invitation to prudishness. It's up to you to decide when and whether you'll consume alcohol responsibly. But getting drunk is never okay for someone who's following Jesus. It's not. And neither is getting high, by the way. Because when you do that, you're allowing the desires of your flesh to control you. You're putting something else in control of your life and your behavior. And you can't do that, not even for a short time, because you are a new self now. And Jesus is your head, and he is the only one who should be in control. And frankly, I mean, this is just an aside from me. This isn't in Scripture, but I just want to be clear. While it's not wrong to drink responsibly, we are also free to decide to refrain from drinking at all in order to act lovingly towards the people around us. Because some people grew up with alcoholism in their home, and they find it extremely painful to watch others drink. And some people have a genetic predisposition to addiction. And so if they start drinking, they just can't stop. And so they refrain entirely. That can be pretty tough if every social situation involves alcohol. And so... I just want you to understand that it is perfectly within our means as believers to choose abstinence, not out of legalism, but out of love for our brothers and sisters. That's a real choice we have. And here's the final thing. After all of this, the the last four lines of this text today are about singing. Isn't that strange? This is so strange to me. Be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything. Sing and hymns and songs and singing and melody five times in two verses, a command to sing, to worship. After all the stuff we're supposed to take off, specifically our tendency to be controlled by the desires of our flesh, what we're supposed to put on is worship and thanksgiving. A couple of years ago, somebody said, I mean, they weren't saying it to me. I just 
passages there. They said, worship is telling the truth about who God is. And that really caught me. I always think about telling the truth as being something hard. But I always think about the truth being hard. Like we have to face the truth. We have to tell the hard truth about something. And I don't mind that. I, you know, I kind of like that. But there's also beautiful truth. There's also healing truth. There's also unmatched gracious truth. The truth about God is that he loves us. He created us. He rescued us. He's fond of us. He knows us. He's making us new. And so as his body, as the church, we put on worship. We really do sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We tell each other the beautiful truth about who God is. Sometimes we take pictures or we paint. We create, we write music, we sculpt, we sew, and we build. And then we sing again, even if we're not very good at it. Because we're putting God in his rightful place as our head. We're telling the truth about him. So, we've covered a lot of ground today. Talking about putting off the old and putting away the old self and then putting on the new self. And it does not do any good if you sit here and listen to me talk on Sunday morning and then don't do anything with the message. So as we go, let me just remind us of a couple of action items. First of all, put off the old self. Now today we've been talking about sexual impurity and debauchery. And so those are very big words and very big topics and very, very hard to put those things away without help. So I just want to say out loud, if you are in trouble with drugs, with alcohol, with pornography, with sexual behavior, uh, come and talk to us, and we will get you some help. You're probably going to need help to deal with those things, and that's okay. Second, put on a new self. Imitate God. So start reading the Gospels, and I want you to be ready to join a Bible study in six months. Thanksgiving. We didn't talk too, too much about this, but it's, it's in the scripture from today twice. This is what I'm doing this week. You can do this. Consider making a list every day of the things that you're thankful for and then praying those things back to God. See what kind of impact that has, that kind of practice might have on your spirit. And finally, worship. How can we expand our worship to be outside of this brief time on Sunday morning. You know, I'm sort of terrible when it comes to music. I just, like, I never think about it. So it's never on. It's not that I don't like it. I just, I just never think about it. Um, but maybe that's a way. Maybe we put a worship CD on in the car or in the bathroom. Maybe sing along with it, even if you're not very good at singing. Or maybe you start an art project this week with a focus on telling the truth about who God is, a way to worship him, drawing attention to his name. This second half of Ephesians is about how we should live, and I think the instructions here are really excellent for us. And so I challenge you to take these things seriously. Go into the week ready to imitate God, to give thanks and to worship him. And we're going to practice that right now, worship team is going to come back up.
and, uh, and and practice it this afternoon. So let me just pray for you. Father, I'm grateful for this um, for this scripture. I'm grateful for your word and for the way that you lead us and teach us for who you are, for how much you love us, and that you are merciful. And we worship you now in obedience to your word. We pray in your name.